Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 259 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Sorry for the lateness of this week's show. It's been a bit of a challenging week. You know what it's like, right? Today we return to Northern Ireland during the Troubles. For a story that is... Well, in addition to being incredibly sad on a human level, it's staggering in so many other ways. But before we start, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That is Deirdre Allen, Debbie Riches, Anne Kelly, Martin Hines and Jake Wilde. Thank you so much for all your support, which is much appreciated. I'm delighted that this show is again brought to you by Best Fiends. With Best Fiends, the fun never ends. A bit like this podcast. If you haven't played before, it's a game which is made for adults. But like me, you will love the bright, colourful and easy gameplay. It's a super straightforward game to get into. And it's a casual game that you can pick up whenever you have some spare time. I played for a while earlier today taking a break from writing this podcast. I really like the fact that you don't need any internet to play, as living where I live in a dodgy internet area, that is so important. But it's the game itself I enjoy the most, especially the puzzles. Who doesn't like solving puzzles? The cute characters you collect during the game to help you on future levels are super cool. Once you start playing Best Fiends, you'll quickly realise that though you think you've been playing for just a few minutes, Half an hour has raced by. And in these challenging times when we are always so busy, that's no bad thing. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest the month and year game. The awesome prodigy were top of the UK charts with Everybody in the Place. In the US, it was the less awesome Michael Jackson with Black or White. And in Australia, the best-selling album of the year was the soundtrack to Jesus... (laughs) Why am I laughing? To Jesus Christ Superstar. In the news this month, Australian cricketing legend Shane Warne made his test debut versus India in the third test at Sydney. And it was the last day of professional cricket for Imran Khan who later went on to become Prime Minister of Pakistan. How things change, huh? This month, President George Bush got ill and threw up on the Japanese PM's lap. Not classy, George. All of us who've been in a similar position know that that is why God invented napkins. In US crime news, serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer pleaded guilty for insane, and boxer Mike Tyson's rape trial began. You will recall he was later found guilty. And in UK true crime news, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International went into liquidation. A true scandal, this one, with many of the major players evading justice. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. It's so hard to believe, isn't it? 
that wealthy bankers didn't face justice, but it's true. I'll bring you the full story on this podcast in 2022. So, did you get the month and year? It was January 1992. This week's story comes from Northern Ireland. Before I begin, let me say again that this is not a political podcast and I don't pretend to be in any position to comment on the complex politics of the time. I'm interested in the story and how it affected the people involved and any mention of the politics is purely for context but it can't be ignored. The Irish Republican Army or IRA was formed in 1969 as the armed wing of the political movement Sinn Féin and existed to remove British forces from Northern Ireland and to unify Ireland. As the IRA and other paramilitary groups waged an increasingly violent campaign and the British army retaliated, there were many terrible events during the 30 years of what was known as the Troubles. In January 1992, there was no let-up in the violence by paramilitary groups in Northern Ireland. This included an attack on the 3rd of January, when 10-year-old Ruth Patterson was on the way to the hairdressers in Moy with her mum. A car blocked the road, which unknown to the Pattersons, contained gunmen from the Loyalist Paramilitary Group, the Ulster Volunteer Force or UVF. The UVF's goals were to combat Irish republicanism, particularly the IRA, and to maintain Northern Ireland's status as part of the United Kingdom. The gunmen had just killed two Catholic civilians, 32-year-old father of four, Kevin McKeany, and fatally injured his 78-year-old uncle Jack, who would later die of his injuries, at their family butcher's shop. As the gunman left the shop following the double murder and saw the car containing Ruth and her mum, he fired at the car. And although Ruth's mum pulled her to one side, undoubtedly saving her life, the bullet went into her arm creating four wounds. Ruth was luckily able to make a full recovery. Just days before this attack took place, Kevin McKinney's mum Maura had received a phone call threatening that three men in white coats would be killed in Moist Square. This clearly referred to her son Kevin and the others working at the butcher's shop who always wore white coats. She reported this to the police force, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, and years later it was found that the RUC hadn't formally recorded or investigated the reported death threat and gave the McKinneys no advice about their security. It was also found that the RUC had lost key evidence that could have led to the murderer being caught and nobody was ever convicted of this double killing. It was believed that this murder was a retaliatory attack for the murder of a Protestant man by Republican paramilitaries at his family's shop in the same village just two weeks before. Robin Farmer, the 19-year-old son of a policeman, was murdered on the 21st of December 1991 by the Irish National Liberation Army, the INLA. The violence of January 1992 continued. On the 4th and 5th of January, the IRA detonated bombs in Belfast, causing considerable damage, but luckily, on both occasions, there was no loss of life. On the 9th of January, another loyalist paramilitary group the Ulster Freedom Fighters, 
shot dead a Catholic civilian, 28-year-old Philip Campbell, at his mobile fish and chip shop. Then on the 10th of the month, the IRA exploded a small bomb that was hidden in a briefcase and left 300 metres from Downing Street in London. The IRA struck again on the 13th of January, this time in Northern Ireland, where they killed 21-year-old Catholic civilian Michael Logue. It was 1.15am when the joiner left his girlfriend's home at County Tyrone and he was killed instantly when an IRA bomb exploded under his car. It later transpired that he'd been killed in error, with the IRA claiming that they'd acted on erroneous information. His girlfriend explained what had happened at the November 1994 inquest. She said there was a loud bang just seconds after she'd walked into the car and she rushed outside and found him lying across both seats and he told her several times to call an ambulance. Neighbours had pulled him from the car still conscious when the ambulance arrived but he would later die in hospital. And the next day saw the UFF strike again when they murdered 41-year-old David Boyd, a member of their own organisation. He was shot outside his home as they believed he was an informer feeding evidence of their activities to others. This brings us to the events of 17th of January 1992, a most appalling killing by the IRA, now widely known as the T-Bay Massacre. By 1992, in the IRA's campaign against the British, they believed that Irish civilian workers and contractors working for the British Army were now legitimate targets to attack and kill. The IRA forged a plan to attack a van carrying construction workers who'd been repairing a British Army base in Omar. Their firm, Carl Construction, which was located in Antrim, had been specifically targeted because they carried out work for the security forces, which, as we've heard, was seen by the IRA as a legitimate target. Friday the 17th of January 1992 was a day that had been planned for the attack. The IRA gang decided to carry out the attack at the rural T-Bain crossroads between Omar and Cookstown in County Tyrone. They planned to detonate a bomb as the group of men went to work in their van to Lizanelli Army Barracks. The bomb was planted the night before and estimates about the size of the roadside bomb vary, but it contained up to 1,500 pounds of homemade explosives in two plastic barrels. Once the bomb was placed, the IRA gang planned to retreat 100 yards or so away to higher ground, ready to detonate the bomb using a command wire. On the morning of the planned attack, the weather was foggy. With the forecast showing the fog due to clear in the afternoon, the gang changed their plans and decided to delay the attack until the men were travelling home in the afternoon. Meanwhile, the men carried out their work that day totally unaware of the plans that had been made. Later, as the clock approached 5pm, the mood was good in the Ford Transit van as it headed back towards Cookstown. After a hard day at work, the 14 men were all looking forward to the weekend and in good spirits. They could never have expected the horror that was about to befall them. When the bomb exploded, the sound was so loud it could be heard over 10 miles away. 
the effect on the van was devastating. The roof was torn off and one side of the van was ripped apart, instantly killing all the men who'd been sitting there. The force was so ferocious that some of those who'd been in the van were blown from the vehicle into a nearby field and the ditch by the side of the road. The momentum of the van kept it moving for 30 yards or so as it slowly came to a halt. There was a deathly silence before the terrible cries of those who had survived the attack could be heard. The survivors couldn't quite comprehend what had happened, but as they staggered from the remains of the van in shock, the sights, sounds and smells that greeted them were ones that nobody should ever have to see and ones they would never forget. Seven of the men died at the scene, 25-year-old Gary Bleeks, 37-year-old Cecil James Cardwell, 25-year-old Robert Dunseith, 38-year-old John Richard McConnell, 22-year-old Nigel McKee, 61-year-old Robert Irons, and 24-year-old David Harkness. The driver of the van, 44-year-old Oswald Gilchrist, suffered terrible injuries, and although he made it to hospital, he died four days later. It was the greatest number of people who had been killed in a single terrorist incident since 1988. Ruth Forrest would later tell the Belfast Telegraph about her brother, David Harkness, who was killed in the attack. David, a joiner, was the youngest of six children, and he had been working in Australia. He was staying at his parents' house in Cookstown for a few months before heading back to Australia. He loved it there. Just six days before the attack was his birthday and he was pondering whether to go to work on the Friday when he was killed. Ruth said, He'd been off work for a couple of days and when I phoned him on the Thursday night he said he wasn't sure he was going in the next day. The last thing he said to me was that if the blinds were down the following morning I was to call in because he decided to stay at home. But when I drove past, the blinds were up. The worst thing was that David would normally have taken Mummy's car to work, but that day, for whatever reason, he caught the minibus. On the day of the attack, his parents had been away, staying with family in England, but Ruth was in the area when the attack happened, and she told of her experience. She said, Around 5.10pm I heard a bang. I opened the door and looked out and a neighbour shouted that a bomb had gone off somewhere. I could hear sirens and they were coming from the direction of my parents' house. Then I heard a news bulletin saying workmen were feared dead in an IRA bomb and I fell to my knees. I told my husband Adrian that David was caught up in it. It was just a gut instinct. My sisters had that same gut instinct. We all knew something was wrong. At 9pm, Daddy's sister Heather phoned us to tell us that David was dead. My parents were on a flight back when we learnt it was all over. David's poor parents were of course devastated at the loss of their only son and this wasn't the only tragedy to have hit the family as years earlier their policewoman daughter, 22-year-old Doreen, was also killed in a car accident. Part of me died with my brother, said Ruth. We were the two youngest. I was always watching out for him. To this day I still feel that I failed him because I wasn't there when he needed me the most.
just nine days after his birthday on the 20th of January. David was buried in the family plot at Cookstown Cemetery. It was just hours after the bomb that a call was made to the newsroom at Ulster Television from a man using a recognised code word, admitting responsibility for the attack on behalf of the Tyrone Brigade of the Provisional IRA, but wrongly stated that the van was carrying Henry's workers. It was seemingly another error by the IRA, though that word doesn't come close to putting into words what had happened. The men who had died in the attack weren't the original targets of the atrocity. It was, in fact, intended for the workers of another company, Henry Brothers, who were also working at Liz and Nelly Barracks at the time of the attack. Henry's was a major contractor for the security forces, and so were prime targets for the terrorists. Indeed, three of their staff had already been killed by the IRA. The IRA said the workers were killed because they were collaborating with the forces of occupation. In their statement they said, The IRA reiterates its long-standing call to those who continue to provide services or materials to the forces of occupation to desist immediately. Since 1985, the IRA has adopted a policy of taking military action aimed at ending Britain's cynical use of non-military personnel for the servicing and maintenance of British Crown Forces bases and installations. For our part, we in the IRA will not tolerate a situation where military personnel are freed from essential services and maintenance tasks and then deployed where they can carry out wholesale repression within our community. Nobody was ever brought to justice for the murders and the families and friends of those affected are angry that those lost in this awful attack have not received justice. And that compared to other crimes committed during the Troubles, this attack has not had the same amount of publicity. There has also been considerable speculation over the years that the security forces knew there was going to be an attack and didn't stop it. And also that the attack wasn't investigated as thoroughly as it should have been. Of course, as with so many atrocities carried out by all involved in the conflict, finding the truth is incredibly difficult. Let's examine some of the key points around the investigation. In July 1987, to stop workers carrying out work for the security services being attacked, the RUC launched Operation Hemel, which was replaced in June 1991 by Operation Ironside and it was this that was in force at the time of the T-Bay massacre. And on the day of the bomb, the RUC had told Henry's, the firm seemingly targeted by the IRA, not to use the A505 route where the attack took place. A director from Henry's later said, Henry's vehicles travelled daily to Lizanelli Barracks, using the approved routes provided by the RUC. Some days, the A505 was the approved route, but not on the day of the murders. On that basis, Henry Brothers would have known not to travel along it that day. Jean Caldwell, who lost her 37-year-old husband in the attack, spoke about the lack of security given to the men, saying, There was no security given to those men at the time, 
It was a dangerous road and they should not have been travelling on it. My husband Jimmy knew about the threat. All those men did. I remember Jimmy saying to me about it. And he said they weren't sure whether the threat was on the army, the army barracks or the police station. But they knew there was a threat on. I used to pick Jimmy up on a Friday, rain, hail or snow. But that Friday I didn't go to Omar. I went on the Wednesday and there was a heavy threat on that week because I remember the army coming out and taking me inside Lisanelli barracks. My feeling is that the route they were travelling on should have been researched a lot more and there was very poor communication between the police and the construction firm. Many others have made this claim too that Carl Construction had not communicated enough with the RUC as otherwise they too would have avoided this route. Directors of Carl Construction replied to this allegation in the strongest possible terms, saying, The opinion of the directors was that all Carl vehicles were either travelling on secure routes or with security cover under the direction of the RUC. Ops Antrim did not at any time state to Carl security staff that the transport vehicle collecting the workmen and travelling from Antrim and Cookstown to Amar was not on a secure route. And there were other aspects of the investigation that concerned the families of those involved. A survivor of the attack, Bobby O'Neill, described how a bearded man walked among the wreckage as the construction workers lay dead or injured moments after the explosion. Had this been one of the killers? The Historical Inquiries Team, or HET, report into the bombing showed that two similar photo fits were given to police in the days and weeks after the attack, which showed this bearded man. As well as Bobby, a bearded man was also seen by witness L, a lorry driver, at the bus stop at T-Bain Crossroads on the morning of the attack. Both assisted police in compiling a photo fit of the man. Witness L viewed photographs of the suspects, but failed to identify anyone, while Bobby was never asked to view any photographs of suspects. Neither photo fit was ever shown to the public in the search for the killers. Why was this? The HET report said there is no explanation for this in the RUC investigation. The same report said that RUC special branch officers from Omar recommended a list of nine provisional IRA members from the area that they considered suspects. Suspect 1 was arrested, said nothing, and was released the next day. Suspect 9 was reported to have been working in England at the time. That person was never questioned. Suspects 2, 3 and 4 were arrested and their houses searched. All were released after four days without charge. Suspects 5, 6 and 7 were arrested in the February but released without charge. Suspects 1, 2, 4 and 6 were on the list of 9 provided by Special Branch but suspects 3, 5, 7 and 9 were not. Five men on the list were never arrested and there is no record to explain why they were not. The HEP report finds that no other arrests were ever made in relation to the investigation and as we said before, None has ever been charged in connection with the eight murders. Ruth Forrest was angry that there hadn't been justice for her brother David. 
She spoke to the Belfast Telegraph ahead of the 25th anniversary of the bombing, saying, I don't feel as though we've got justice. I'm angry that no one has ever been convicted for what happened or for taking my brother's life. He was so young, he has missed out on so much. There are still a lot of unanswered questions. A lot of men died, but I believe their deaths could have been prevented. I would like a complete inquiry into what happened. You hear about other troubles-related killings, but you don't often hear about T-Bane. There is a hierarchy of victims, and we are the forgotten ones. Jean Caldwell also spoke movingly about the effect losing her husband had on the couple's two children, Grace and Diane, saying, Grace was only three and never knew her father. It has had a huge impact on all of our lives. People ask me, do you forgive them? And I always say, how can I forgive them? I don't know who to forgive. To mark the 25th anniversary of the attack, the police service of Northern Ireland were asked if they could release the image of the bearded man. After all, in the passage of time, many allegiances could have shifted and this could lead to finding those responsible for the bombing. The response from the police is, I suggest, a little surprising. A police spokesperson said, The release of photo fits and other material must be undertaken as part of a broader investigative strategy. As no active lines of inquiry currently exist, it would not be appropriate to release this material in isolation. 19 pieces of evidence were recovered from the scene, including sweet papers and a cigarette packet, but they didn't provide any useful evidence, even when subjected to new DNA tests. Of course, there are people alive today who know exactly who is responsible for this attack, those who were in the IRA at the time, but they aren't telling. In January 2012, Democratic Unionist Party MLA Trevor Clark, who lost his brother-in-law Nigel McKee, who at just 22 years old, was the youngest person killed in the bombing, once again asked those who had been connected to the IRA to provide the names of the IRA bombers so that the families of those killed and injured were given some sort of closure. But predictably, no names were put forward. The army moved out of Lizanelli Barracks in 2007. The barracks that the murdered men had been working at has now been turned into an education campus with a number of schools on the site. Feelings still run deep about the massacre at T-Bain. Indeed, Carl Construction erected a granite memorial at the site of the attack and each year, families and friends come together to mark the anniversary with a memorial service but this memorial has been vandalised on a number of occasions. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But if feelings still run high today, back in 1992, just after the attack, the community was devastated. With all the men killed being Protestant, it was seen by many as a sectarian attack on their community and one that needed to be avenged. And next week, we will hear about the brutal and senseless manner of that revenge which again left innocent people dead and families grieving. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and to talk about any other aspects of UK True Crime, please join us at the Facebook group. 
And to support the show, please join me at Patreon, where you can access a whole range of bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So that's all for me for this week. Until we speak again next Tuesday, and it will be Tuesday, please do take it easy. And despite all the others, please stay classy. Cheerio for now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.